Today's episode is sponsored by pattern and book publisher Indigo Junction. Check out Indigo Junction's new sew by machine method for Fabriflare. This dimensional paper piecing line includes a fusible stabilizer in six patterns with designs for both home and fashion. The projects are artful objects that can showcase your favorite designer's prints. They're also ideal for making as gifts. Visit Indigo Junction's YouTube channel to see pattern reviews and tutorials on Fabriflare. Warning, it's addictive. Visit Indigo Junction's website and use the code WSN20 for a 20% off discount on your entire order. Thank you so much, Indigo Junction. And now here's the show. to episode 119 of the Walshy Naps podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Today, we're talking about building a career as a quilter, teacher, and designer with my guest, Leslie Tucker Jennison. Leslie is an artist who makes contemporary quilts. She creates surface designs with dye and paint, and photography frequently informs her designs either literally or by way of inspiration. Leslie has been a guest on The Quilt Show, Quilting Arts TV, Fresh Quilting, and more. Her work has been featured in numerous publications, including Quilting Arts, Modern Quilts Unlimited, and Where Women Create Quilters, as well as numerous books. Her work has been shown internationally and is part of corporate and private collections. She's also a fabric designer for RJR Fabrics. Outside of her studio, Leslie loves to travel, cook, garden, and paint. She's a happy member of a rather eccentric family of artists and nerds. Leslie Tucker Jennison, welcome. Thank you for having me, Abby. I'm really excited to talk with you and learn more about your fantastic career. So I'd like to start by going back a little bit, if you don't mind, and talking about your background. So I know you live in San Antonio, Texas now. I do. Have mm -hmm. you always lived in Texas or where did you grow up? I consider myself a naturalized Texan, actually. We, uh, my husband and I both grew up in the Midwest. He's from Iowa. I grew up in Kansas. I was born in Lawrence and really grew up in Topeka, Kansas. We met there and we lived there until 1997, at which time he decided to move his company to San Antonio. So that's how we ended up here. And, I, you know, I, lo I, lo I love being in the Midwest and being from the Midwest, but I, I really do love my adopted city. It's a okay. great place to live. Okay. And so did you, what did you study in college? I, I feel like I read somewhere that you were a nurse as your first career. Yes. Yes. In my previous life, as I like to refer to it, uh, I was a registered nurse. I spent most of my nursing career in women's health oriented areas. I was an inpatient obstetrical nurse for many years. And then I also worked in an outpatient women's health care center that was focused on wellness oriented services and did a lot of community health education during all that. So I was a member of a nonprofit called the Family Center, and we contracted with the hospital that I work for to provide educational services for, you know, women in all aspects of their life. So uh, I loved that career. I absolutely enjoyed every bit of it. And it was a little bit bittersweet to move on away from that. Uh, once we moved to Texas, I, due to some responsibilities in my extended family, we just made the decision that I wouldn't transfer my license down here, at least immediately when we moved. And I was, the first six years we lived in San Antonio, I was commuting back to the Midwest very frequently uh, because my mother and sister were still living at the time. So it would have been very difficult, if not impossible, to continue practicing. 
So okay. as a result, I didn't practice any longer after we moved. Okay. I see. Um, and so you were in this new city, didn't have your nursing license, um, were taking care of some family things. And uh-huh. was there an introduction, an initial introduction that you remember to um, to doing artwork of some kind, sort of a mixed media artwork, or had that always sort of been there in the background? I think that's an interesting way to put it. I believe that the seed was planted for quilt making probably when I was a kid because I was very influenced by my paternal grandmother who lived in a very tiny little town in north central Kansas. She, at the time I knew her, was the local seamstress and she probably made every single stitch of clothing I made or that I wore, I'm sorry, as a kid. And she always had a quilt in a frame in one of her upstairs bedrooms. It was one of those old frames that was pulled up to the ceiling when she wasn't actively working on it. And uh, she, you know, always had something going on. She was always working on some kind of needlework and she never actively recruited me for that. But I think that that planted a seed for me early on in my life. Then fast forward to when I was a young adult and began my nursing practice, there was a woman who was a nurse on the night shift who would always come in early to work so that she had a few moments before her shift began to work on her quilt. And I think those two things may have started interconnecting a little bit because I expressed an interest in it observing her, thinking about my grandmother. And she, I was lucky because she took an interest in that and encouraged me and sort of took me under her wing and mentored me. And uh, so my introduction to quilt making started way back in the late seventies or early eighties. Admittedly, the first, the first couple of decades, I guess we could say of my quilting life, if you will, was, you know, infrequent little flurries of activity related to it. I don't think I was very productive as a quilt maker. And that was due to career and family responsibilities, taking more of my time. So I think that one of the things that happened to me when we moved to Texas, and once things settled down with my responsibilities in the Midwest, was that that became that kind of opened up to me as something that I could focus a little more of my energy on. And unbeknownst to me, when we moved here, I had no idea that I was landing in such a hotbed of really talented people and especially in the world of surface design. So it was an unexpected gift to be in a place where wonderful artists also lived. Um, I was able to make the acquaintance of Jane Donwald in particular, who was a huge influence on my work. And uh, that was, you know, lucky for me, I think, really. Okay. So this nurse um, helped you to sort of get started in quilting um, and was, and then Jane Donwald, and do you want to say a little bit about what her work is like in surface design? Yes. I think that she could be considered one of the one of the people who really spurred an interest in what I call art cloth, meaning that layers of imagery that tell a story, a visual story. She is a primarily, I think, what she calls an art cloth artist, but she is also a quilt maker. And she's the person that's responsible for me learning more about dye processes printing, how to work with imagery, how to layer so that it's a visual story. And she's a very, in the, in the world of surface design and art cloth, she's world renowned really for her work. Does she live in San Antonio? Lucky for me, she does. And so did you meet her? Did you join a guild or did you take a workshop? How did you first meet her? (laughs) The way that I found out about it, it took me a little while to figure all this out once I was here was through a guild called the Fiber Artists of San Antonio. And I'm not even looking back, not sure she was a member at that time, but through some people in the guild and also there's a 
there's also a school here called the Southwest School of Art. And at that time, there were a lot of adult education type workshops that are offered through the school. And one of the people that I studied with very early on was uh, Susie Mundy, who I believe was also a student of Jane's. But the first introduction to the world of dying and that sort of thing was through Susie Mundy, and that led to Jane Dunwald, and I took a couple of workshops from her and, you know, kind of got my toe in the water with it. I had actually become interested in the idea of dyeing, hand-dyeing fabric. Back in the early 90s, I happened to cross paths with Deborah Lund, who was probably the first person I ever knew who was doing their own cloth, not buying just commercial dyed or printed cloth. She was dyeing her own. And I happened to cross paths with her in Kansas City at a quilt show in 1991, I think. So that probably planted this that seed. And then lucky for me, when I moved to San Antonio, there were all these people who had expertise in how to actually achieve that. So it was a one of the little gifts of moving here for sure. Right. And it sounds like all along, I mean, you've been, you've had this sort of interest. And so yes. when you've seen people or, or things that sort of um, related to it, you know, you, you notice them. And then when the time was right, we're able to pursue it further. Yes. And um, I know that um, you, so, and, and then take some classes and really learn. And I know you've studied with Nancy Crow more than once. And I wondered if yes. you could sort of explain um, what it is that Nancy Crow teaches and why you felt it would be beneficial to you to study with her. I'd love to talk about that. I, I kind of informally think of what I'm doing right now as my own personally styled graduate course in, in design and, you know, that sort of realm, I guess, because my background is so very different from that. My undergraduate degree was in nursing, obviously, and I don't really have an official art background, not that I think that's always required for becoming a, an artist. But it definitely led to a curiosity about things that I felt that I didn't know enough about. And I've had the good fortune, I think, to study with several people that are absolutely wonderful in their particular areas of expertise, Jane Dunwald being one of them. I've worked over the years, done some work with Hollis Chatelaine, and then more recently, Nancy Crow. And I've been a great admirer of Nancy's work ever since I became familiar with her work, probably back in the early 80s. And uh, it was always in the back of my mind throughout the years that at some point when the timing was right and the opportunity presented itself, that I would love to spend some time with her, not necessarily because I want to make work that looks like hers, but because I appreciate her aesthetic and uh, her point of view with her work. And I think that Nancy's background is that she has her, her educational background is that she was a weaver trained as a weaver. And I think her training was oriented very classic design with figure and ground. And so I feel like studying with Nancy is giving me this new perspective on how to look at work, what to be thinking about when I'm making my own work. And uh, it's really challenging to me. And I really love that. I think being pushed a little bit out of my comfort zone for me is where the magic is. I like to be working I mean, I enjoy any work that I'm doing and it's fun and sometimes it's good to be comfortable in that place, you know, and it's sort of like being in a, in a nice cozy bathrobe, if you will, you know, there's nothing wrong with being comfortable with where you're at with your work and, and feeling competent at it. But it's always, I, for me anyway, interesting to push myself out of that comfort zone a little bit, because when I have that degree of, I don't know if I want to say uncertainty about it, but I think when I'm just feeling challenged by the work, when it's, when it's giving me more to think about and it, it feels difficult, I like that. I think that's for me where the magic sometimes is. And I think when you get into that little space, you have to be willing to realize that not everything you make is going to be good. Uh, I think you've got to be willing to make 
to make things that you don't consider successful. Because I don't, I think if, for me anyway, if I'm not willing to fail, if you will, at something, or, or in other words, make something that I don't think is successful as something else might be, I don't think I can get to the good stuff without making some bad stuff, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, it reminds me recently I was making puppets and I went to the fabric store with my 11-year-old and bought the foam that is sort of the structure inside the puppet. And she said, well, Uh why are you buying so much? (laughs) Because the puppets are small and, you know, they don't use very much foam, maybe like a 12 by 12 inch piece, but I was buying like two yards of foam. And she's like, why are you buying so much foam? I said, because I need lots of space to fail, right? I need to be able to make lots of puppets that don't work and not worry that I'm going to run out. So I just want enough that I can like, just make it, hate it, and then learn from it and throw it away and keep moving. I I think it's really hard to do that. But I think if you can just get into that mindset where you realize not everything is going to be the masterpiece of your dreams. You know, you're going to have to make a lot of stuff before you get to that piece. And hopefully you do get to that piece at some point. But I think with us, when we're working with cloth and maybe there's a few more technical steps, and I'm not saying that doing a a wonderful painting isn't without its challenges, but paint's a little more forgiving in terms of mistakes. You can scrape it off. You can, you know, paint over it. And it's kind of hard to do that with textiles that are being cut apart and reconstructed. So, you know, sometimes it is necessary to go, well, okay, that one didn't work out the way I thought it would. Let's move on to the next one. But I think if you keep working or for me anyway, I don't know if it's the same for others, but I have to, I have to know sometimes, and I have to be a harsh critic of my own work. I have to be kind of ruthless about it, I think. And not everything is going to be the kind of thing I'm going to enter in a show or deem as, you know, one of my best pieces. I, I just have to accept that I'm going to have to work through that and, right. and it's move not, on to the next piece. And it's not a waste of time. So tell us um, what is on your work table right now? Like what have you been working on over the last few weeks? Well, I have, you know, as usual, several plates spinning here. I always have a couple of different constructions up on the wall. So I'm doing some kind of, I call it homework, if you will, some black and white sewn sketches of different design configurations for my upcoming workshop in the fall with Nancy Crow. So I'm doing some work preparing for that. I'm also in the process of making a couple of samples for a workshop that I hope to teach next year. And uh, I think that particular sample making exercise is a perfect example of what I was just talking about, which is that although I like the concept that I'm working on, the first iteration of my idea isn't successful, but I'm going to go ahead and finish it because I think that's a good teaching opportunity. So in the, in terms of this sample that I don't consider as successful as it might be, I think the problem with it is that I have a value problem with the color and the range of of colors. So I decided, you know what, that's okay. I'm just going to go ahead and make it, finish it because it's pretty close anyway. I'm going to finish it, get it quilted. And this will be the one that I if I teach this workshop, I'll, I'll talk to students about why I think this particular one could be better if I'd done A, B, or C. Right. You know? So I think there's something to be said for just going ahead and pushing through that. Yeah. Sometimes I won't do that. I mean, there's some, some pieces for sure that I will say, okay, been there, done that, have the t-shirt. Right. I mean, just moving better, on. I'm not better to abandon it. it, right? Better to abandon exactly. it than to Quit keep while going. You're ahead, right. You yeah. Know? Yeah. No, there's, that's true. I mean, I, I think, um, you have to make that judgment call. So, um, so yeah. I know that you, you like to, to dye your own fabrics, print your own fabrics, and sometimes you use pretty unconventional, um, you know, uh, materials <laughs> to print with. Yes. Um, I watched a, a little video of you at Quilt Market, and we'll talk later about the commercial fabrics that you've designed. But okay. you were explaining that you had made the surface pattern with a lid from a vitamin bottle, this little <laughs> circular lid. Yes. And um, and I wondered if you can sort of um, talk a, a little bit about getting over that fear of using something unconventional or sort of 
you know, I think a lot of people, uh, you know, that makes them uncomfortable to think about sort of reaching for something that's odd or other people haven't thought of, you know, um, and um, so how how do you sort of, how do you think about that? One of the most interesting aspects of doing that particular kind of work is to ask myself, what if? Every time I go into the print or dye studio that I have, I'm always scratching my head about how can I, how can I translate this or how can I use this shape? And it can be something as strange as, as you said, the, the vitamin bottle lid. I like to look at the shapes. Sometimes I will find stuff that I've picked up at on the ground in my garden or pick a couple leaves off of a tree to see what they're going to look like under a silk screen. I even, it's, it's kind of a problem really. I mean, I have friends that now do stuff like I had a friend a couple of years ago who presented me with this strange looking piece of material. And I said, what, what's this? And she goes, you know, I was starting to paint something on my living room wall. And I had that paint tray that you, you know, pick up paint with your paint roller. And she said, before I poured the paint in, I noticed that there was a already a coating of, of latex paint in the bottom of it. So I peeled it off. And when I saw it, I thought, oh, this is cool. I bet Leslie could do something. With <laughs> I thought, what does it come to? Right. I've got friends peeling paint off the paint tray for me. But actually, she was right. It was cool. So, you know, you never know what could possibly make an interesting texture until you try it. So sometimes kitchen tools, sometimes the underside of a cutting board. Uh, you know, it's kind of interesting to see how an everyday object can translate itself via printing, making a rubbing, putting it under a screen and using it as a resist. With my print work, I can tell you that I'll use my latest endeavor. I've got a, I just finished the print work and, and just now looking at the strike-offs for the next fabric line. And I've for every one that I think turned out pretty well, there are at least five that didn't. You know, it's just a, it's just the law of the odds, I guess. But I had to make a lot of stuff that I didn't like at all <laughs> until I'd get one that was, oh, ah, you know. I want to take a minute now to talk with our sponsor, Indigo Junction, and the founder of Indigo Junction, Amy Barrickman. Hi, Abby. It's Amy Barrickman from Indigo Junction. Hi, Amy. So tell us a little bit about FabriFlare. What is FabriFlare? Well, FabriFlare is a dimensional paper piecing process. So we developed this actually from a a vintage piece that I'd have found, and it was a a star, a three-dimensional star, and we have created kits and then a series of patterns and stabilizer that allow you to make all sorts of, well, I call them artful objects or functional pieces like, a you know, a bowl. We have a pocketbook wristlet. We've done a vase and vessel pattern. And what I love about it is that you can customize these um, projects with your own fabrics whether it be, you know, your favorite collection from a designer or maybe you upcycle some fabric and create a special gift for somebody. It's almost like English paper piecing for people who are familiar with that, but it's like a twist on it because it's got like this stabilizer inside of it. So you can really create like a dimensional object. Right. And the stabilizer is fusible on one side. And so you're wrapping your fabric and fusing it and then stitching the shapes together. It's a great project to travel with because it's small and easy, you know, to carry along. It's something you can make with, you know, family and children. I think that's so special when you make a gift that maybe has a special fabric that you feature on a project, whether it be like making it for a friend who's, you know, a sports team fanatic, you can make them a Christmas ornament with their, their favorite team featured, or maybe you find a vintage textile um, that was a family member's that you're able to preserve in a, a treasured heirloom that can, you know, stand the test of time and be passed down for generations to come. We do have a YouTube channel and we actually have a FabriFlare playlist on that channel. I know there's a coupon code you wanted to share. Yes, the coupon code is WSN20. 
and that will get you 20% off your entire order at indigojunction.com. Thank you so much, Indigo Junction. And now back to my conversation with Leslie. You use, you also combine these sort of hand um, hand designed fabrics, whether they're dyed or, or painted or silkscreen, with commercial fabrics that you know you can buy at a quilt shop when you are making quilts. And I wondered whether. You know, there's a lot of people who are sort of very purist and they only dye their mm-hmm. own fabrics and that's all they use and they will not, you know, they have to mix their own dye, mix their own colors and that's it. Um, and then there's, you know, people who are kind of less purist and anyway, you combine them with commercial prints. So I wondered if there's like an interplay there that you enjoy. Well, there is because I guess I'm, I'm always curious about how people decide what kind of fabric they want to use. And for me, I don't, to be honest with you, I, su- I suppose as a fabric designer, I shouldn't say this out loud, but the truth is I don't usually go into a shop or see fabric at a quilt show and say to myself, oh, I like all that. I'm going to make a quilt with that. I will respond to each one individually and I'll sort of pick it. I, I'll pick fabric and people go, what are you going to do with that? And I'll say, I have no idea. And so when I'm working with fabric, I do the same thing with commercial combining with hand dyed stuff. I think it's sort of interesting to see that textural contrast. And I like, I like to have that sort of variation in terms of scale, color, size, all that. So I, I'm very kind of random, I guess, in how I will pick things for my own stash, if you will. And when I'm working with the prints, I don't, honestly have a destination for it, generally speaking. I'm usually just on this sort of journey. It's to me working in that environment is a bit of a meditation. And sometimes I'll arrive at an aha moment. But for me, it's the process almost as much as anything. And so I guess when I'm picking commercial fabric, I, res- I just let myself respond to it and I don't have to, I don't analyze that too carefully at the time, but I do think it's interesting when you look at people's, I'm curious about my own, but when I go into someone else's studio and look at what they've chosen, I'm fascinated by that. Why did they like this particular print with, and how do you combine it? I'm, I'm always curious and, and quite fascinated with that process, not only in myself, but also when I look at other people's work, whether it's a finished quilt or just looking at their shelves in their studio to see what they've got. Yeah. It's almost like looking at someone else's jewelry box or something like that. Like all all these interesting things in there and how did they get to be there and why did you choose them or who gave them to you? There's all these wonderful sort of creative stories behind them. And so you use Spoonflower. I know one of the segments Mm -hmm. that you did for Fresh Quilting, which is the Modern Quilt Guild's um, television show, BBS show, was about how to design fabrics in Spoonflower for quilting. So I wondered if you could talk a little bit about, you know, how you use Spoonflower as a creative tool. Spoonflower is another perfect example of how you have to understand going into it that you may not be completely delighted every single time. Maybe people are better at it than I am. I don't know. I I think I'm a pretty good poster child for doing a lot of things in a way that isn't quite as successful before you get to the good stuff. So I've learned with Spoonflower that I learned a lot about repeats and, you know, where things need to be at the edges and so forth. If you're trying to come up with a, with a, pattern that looks good as yardage. I've used Spoonflower to get yardage that way. And sometimes I've gotten it and said, Ooh, well, I wish I'd done this or that in retrospect. So I've learned a lot from just trying to upload an image or a drawing to Spoonflower and manipulating it in their software. But I, I like to take my own photographs or drawings and you know, manip- sometimes I won't manipulate them outright. I'll just upload the image as is and have it printed either as yardage or as a fat quarter or whatever. But I will also sometimes go into their, they have a little kind of a photo editing software called PicMonkey that you can use at no charge when you upload an image to their site. And you can change the color, you can change the 
contrast, all kinds of different things before you opt to actually purchase the fabric. And that's been very educational for me. And I like taking that and integrating those images in some way into a story in a quilt. The first quilt that I made with some degree of success, I won an award for in Houston in 2012. And it was just a photograph I was very, very happy with that I took when I was traveling into uh, the Netherlands. And I basically used the image and sort of built a quilt around that. And I've done, I've done many things like that using Spoonflower printed imagery. I've also taken one image and manipulated it multiple ways with color and value contrast and then used it in kind of a almost posterized type of uh, quilt construction. So I did a bunch of those last summer. I was really I was really on the Spoonflower side a lot last year. I just got inspired by some of the imagery I was getting when I was taking photographs. One thing I love about Spoonflower, though, is even if I load something to their site and play around with it, and I'm not sure yet, I can just archive that on their site, and I'm not obligated to purchase. I can leave it there until maybe I want to return to it in a few months. And I really appreciate that about the way that they have their website set up. Mm-hmm. So. And these are, just to be clear for people, this is digitally printed on-demand fabric, so you can just have, um, you know, a a fat quarter even or a yard, whatever you want, created from an image. And um, are you usually printing, they have lots and lots of substrates that you can choose from, but are you choosing Kona cotton or a different substrate usually? I've used a lot of their substrates. I have a piece of uh, sheer... I think it's a polyester shear that I printed with. Actually, I took the image from one of my commercially printed fabrics and played around with it because I was going to do a construction using a shear. And so I've used the shear. I've printed onto their silk substrates. But I think the majority of the time, I'll go with their Cotton Supreme, the Kona. Okay. So yeah. Just, but there's lots of options, and that's also another thing to play around with, which is pretty cool. Yeah. It is cool. And the other thing that people may not know, I mean, you can keep your imagery. It's just for your use. You can keep it as private so that it's not seen by everyone else if you don't want to share it. But a lot of people use the uh, Spoonflower site to design and, and open it up for people to purchase. And then the maker, the designer, gets a it's a percentage of that sale if people choose their design and print it themselves. Yeah. I like what you said about using this print on demand service as a way to learn about creating repeats and to learn about creating fabrics because in talking to a lot of fabric manufacturer, you know, presidents, um, I've learned that designers who don't quilt or don't you know, sew and use the fabric, sometimes have a harder time designing successful lines um, for, you know, commercial manufacturing because they don't understand as Mm -hmm. much the way that a quilter or somebody who does sew with fabric um, would cut that fabric up or would see it when thinking about a project, a quilting project. And so, you know, as, as somebody who maybe wanted to flex that muscle and improve, this is a way to, to do it, to get some yardage and to learn both about how to make a better repeat and all of that, mm-hmm. but also about how your fabric cuts up and um, what mm-hmm. it looks That's like, true. you know, so this is a really good learning tool. So I want to move to talking about your commercial fabrics. So you are a designer with RJR, which is one of the major manufacturers of yes. um, premium quilting cotton. So people have seen those fabrics um, in their local quilt shops. And um, I know you've said that you wanted your particular designs to be timeless. And I love this in the way that Eileen Fisher clothing has that timeless sensibility. And I knew exactly what you were talking about. I'm actually wearing Eileen Fisher pants today. (laughs) And I think I bought these pants. um, Oh my gosh, I'm not going to even, I'm going to be embarrassed to say how many years ago, but they are just like a black 
really slim pants and they go with everything. And I've worn them for like, I don't know, more than five years, <laughs> a long time. So anyway, I'm sure I can win that contest. <laughs> I have an Eileen Fisher sweater that I know that I bought in the mid nineties. Okay. So and, right. wear it. and it's still in style. So That's right. when you're thinking about creating fabric with that same sensibility, I wondered sort of how do you achieve that? Like what, do, what does that mean for fabric? The way that I use fabric, I guess, I try to let that inform how I would want my fabric that I'm getting commercially printed to resonate with people. So I, as I said earlier, will often reach for a piece of fabric without any idea of how I'm going to use it. I don't, sometimes I will pick fabric and I have a very specific idea of what I want to do, but often it's the opposite. I'll pick it because I love it and I respond to it just like I would a painting or something, but I don't have a, I don't have an end destination for it yet. And some fabric will, I call it marinate on my shelf for a while. And then suddenly it's evident what I want to do with it. And I'm really happy when I have fabric that I think stands this, the test of time. I don't think all, for me anyway, not all fabric does that. And maybe it's because my interests change. It's not that the fabric itself wasn't successfully designed. It's more about what my personal preferences are now versus maybe when I bought something 10 years ago, let's say. But I like fabrics that I call standing the test of time. So they'll play nicely with other lines. It's great if you have a line of fabric. And I hope that when I'm designing, I'm achieving that to some degree, that you have fabric that does look well with other prints in the same line. And you certainly want that as a designer. But I'm also just as happy when that fabric will play well with someone else's designs from a different line, a different company. And to me, that's very interesting. I like to have those little happy blends occur. Nothing makes me happier than when I walk into a quilt shop and see that my fabric line is on a shelf with another designer's and it looks great with that designer's fabric because I think that's, you know, that's the way I pick fabric. That's the way I want to get it myself. So it makes me really happy as a designer to see that happens. If somebody hand dyes or paints fabric or, or, you know, does their own designs and then pairs it with yours as well, that would work Yes, since oh, that's, that's something that's like the best thing yeah, ever that you do. So, so how did your, um, partnership with RJR come about? Did you meet them at quilt market? Did you know somebody there? Did you just send out your portfolio to lots of fabric companies? <laughs> how did this happen? Well, I'm chuckling to myself because I'm probably the most unlikely fabric designer ever. All right. I wasn't actively seeking that role. Um, I've been dying and printing my fabric to use in my own work, happily, you know, rolling along here doing that. I did know the artistic director for, R for RJR, who was at the time I met her working at a different fabric company. And I knew her because a friend of mine was designing fabric for that company. So I just met her in passing a number of times through that route. And she approached me several years ago and asked me if I would be interested in her see some of the work that I do related to my printing and dyeing. And I was surprised by it. Uh, I said, well, okay. I mean, I'm happy to let you see it, but I think my question to her was, are you sure that anyone else would be interested in this stuff? I mean, I'm not fishing for a compliment. I'm serious. I don't, I mean, I know I like the work, but I don't, I really have no clue whether anyone else would be interested in it. And she said, well, no, I, I think so. Let's take a look at it. So I sent her some pieces of fabric that were sitting here in my studio on my shelf. And that's where we started. And uh, they took those pieces and did their magic with them and, and their software and figured out the repeats. And, you know, I was shocked that it looked good. And then, of course, the magic of computers is that they can take something that I've designed in a particular color story and translate it into other color stories. So my work is 
much easier, I think, on my end because of that. Because so I, you're sending them, you're sending them um, actual hand dyed pieces or hand yes, printed pieces, you know, so yes. like, is, are the pieces like half a yard or a yard wide or how big are they? Well, they ask me to send pieces that are at least, I, I think that they prefer it when it's a minimum of 12 inches. But in my case, I usually send anywhere from a half yard to yard or yard and a half because I work that way. I mean, everything they get is stuff that I've done on my print bench with dye or in some cases paint, but usually it's just thickened dye or I've done some kind of price process either with soy wax, thickened dye, or just straight up dye. So they're okay. getting the actual pieces that right. come from my hands. And I think it reflects itself in the way the fabric looks because it does have kind of a a little bit of an organic feel to it because it's definitely coming from my hands. And I do also work with Thermofax. Uh, that's a type of way of having a type of a silk screen, if you will, uh, process. So a lot of those screens are generated from my own drawings. So again, you're seeing something that isn't perfect and isn't always completely symmetrical and I kind of, I think I personally respond to that kind of work. I appreciate every kind of design really, but the stuff that truly resonates me with me has a sort of hand wrought look. Yeah. And I think people maybe don't necessarily always realize that you don't have to be able to work on the computer, um, you know, in a, in a program like Adobe Illustrator, for example, to create a repeat that, you know, um, there are ways to do a hand painted um, piece and have that turn into a commercial print. And, and that's what you're doing. And I think that's pretty exciting. And I wondered if you've, um, if you've seen any benefits to you for, I mean, it sounds like this partnership with RJR was somewhat, you know, not accidental, but it sort of came, you know, fell into your lap in a certain yeah. way. Um, it was because, rather unconventional. Right. Because yeah. you were creating all of these fabrics and um, they took note of you. And so, but now that it's um, come to fruition, have you seen any particular benefits? I think that, I think everyone who aspires to designing fabric really has to ask themselves what they what their goals are for it. In my case, I had to do a lot of I call navel gazing because I you know, it's yes, there is a monetary benefit certainly from it and people do make a career out of becoming a fabric designer and perhaps taking those same designs and license licensing them elsewhere. But in my case, one of the one of the things that I decided was a motivator for me was, again, it's back to the design of a quilt process. For me, it's it's a personal challenge. It pushes my work. It pushes me to be more consistent with making that work, to step up to the plate and keep working. Keep. I mean, I'm going to do it anyway, but I might be a little more sporadic if I'm not if I'm not you know, thinking about a line of fabric per se. And I mean, I'm pretty new to this. I've only just finished my, my third round of design work for a, a line that will be coming out this fall at Quilt Market. So I, I'm not a person who's talking about this with years and years of experience. So I consider myself very much a novice at it. But for me, it's, it's a personal challenge. It's, it causes me to think about certain things uh, in a different way, in a new way, and that's important to me. And for me, the other part of it that is motivator is, I, and I really almost consider this the, the best paycheck for me, is that I am so excited to see what someone else does with what I've created. It's such a thrill to see how people decide to use the fabric, how they combine them, what designs they choose to, if they're making a piece construction, how they choose to work with the fabric, if they're hand piecing something or hand applicating it. I mean, I can't tell you how exciting that is for me as a designer. It's it's the best possible thing. So I know that you, um, you also, beyond all of what we've already talked about, you also do curation and um, curate 
uh, quilt shows. And um, you and your friend, Jamie Fingal, have a partnership called Dinner at Eight Artists. And I wondered if you can talk a little bit about how you two came together and what Dinner at Eight is. Jamie and I met each other many years ago via an online news list called the Quilt Art News List, I think, quiltart.net. And this was pre-Facebook and all the other social media avenues. And it was simply an online list that you could receive either individual posts or digest. And it was great for me because I discovered that list right around the time we moved to Texas. So I was in a new city without, you know, my usual circle of friends. And so for me, this group became a community and it was an interesting experience for me because it was the first time I'd ever been on a news list where I felt like I had a pretty friendly relationship with somebody and I wouldn't recognize them if I walked into the same room with them. You know? <laughs> it was strange, but that's how I met Jamie. And then we met face to face, I believe in 2003 at Quilt Festival. And then we were asked to jury an online show together right before the Long Beach Quilt Festival. The, the Quilt Festival used to have a show in Long Beach in the summer. They were there for three years. And Jamie was putting together a special exhibit for that show. And she asked if I would be willing to come on board as a juror for the show. So that's the first show that we juried together that was a, you know, other than a virtual show, it was hanging in, in that festival. And, you know, we work well together. It's interesting because people will come up to us and say, well, you must, you know, agree and get along really well when you jury show. And I said, no, actually nothing could be further from the truth. I mean, we, we have, certainly there's, when we're during shows together, there's always going to be a set number or a, a pretty significant number of quilts that we'll both agree on and, and feel are successful. And then there's the other pieces on both ends of the spectrum that we have to really passionately defend to justify being juried into the show. And I personally think that our different point of view is what makes that show look so good. I think that it, it ups our game personally and looking at quilts because we have to be able to defend why we think this quilt is more successful and should be in the show versus this quilt. You know, I think every time we're doing that process, it's a, I can, I think it's a really educational thing for me personally when I'm doing it. I think she would say the same, but we have to really negotiate a lot of stuff with one another. And so, but we work, you know, we're respectful. We work well together and we, uh, we enjoy the process. What do you think that people don't necessarily realize about that process, about the work of being a curator? People who've never done it, maybe they either just attend the show or maybe they entered something into the show, um, but they're not on the other side of the fence. And so they're not seeing the curation, the jurying process. And so what do people sort of not totally realize or appreciate about what that process is like? Well, I think the one of the first things I would say to somebody is it's really, it's hard not to take not getting into a show personally. We all get, we have a certain sting that occurs. And believe me, for everyone I've gotten in a show, there are 20 that didn't. I mean, that's true of anybody. I don't care how often you've been doing it or how frequently you're in shows. It's the case for everyone. One of the things that I think it's important for people to, to know is sometimes pieces don't get into a show, not because they aren't really successful quilts. Sometimes they don't get into a show because they don't really play well with other things in that particular exhibition. And I think as a curator, I'm not doing a quilt uh, any service if I put it into a an exhibition where it's a total outlier, you know, there's some quilts in when we're doing our, the dinner at eight shows, we have a theme that we're asking people to make quilts for. So our particular exhibitions are maybe a little unusual in that sense that we have a theme and we have a specific size that we want people to construct quilts to that size. So there's a, there's a certain amount of conformity just in those two things that even if you've got an abstracted piece and it's sitting next to something that's 
fairly representational. It works because it's telling a different version of the same story. But sometimes there's a quilt in that collection that we're looking at that's just so different that it just doesn't really, it doesn't communicate well with the other work in the exhibition. So sometimes we'll release a quilt for that reason alone. Right. And, you know, it's, of course it hurts because a lot of the people we're doing, you know, we're doing blind jurying, but after a certain number of years, if you're looking at people's work, you can usually, I say this, I'll say that I can usually recognize the work of somebody, but I've been so surprised over the years that I've been looking at something thinking it's the artist A's and it's not, you know, so I'm often surprised, as surprised as anyone when I am allowed to see who submitted the quilt, the quilt. But I think that's one of the things that people should know. And, you know, when you're submitting work, you're also submitting it to the subjective eyes of a set number of people who are looking at the work. And, you know, that's just one person's point of view, or maybe two, if, if there are two jurors in this group. And, you know, maybe there's some things that they see that you didn't see, and that can be an educational exchange. But I think it's really important to try not to take it personally if something doesn't get in a show. Because first of all, you don't know what else is in that show. You don't know what else the, the jurors have been looking at and what they're contrasting it to. But, you know, I, I think putting something in a show, and this is always my experience, it's very, it makes you vulnerable. You know, you're putting your work that's very personal to you out there in the world and you're letting somebody have an opinion on it. And, you know, it's hard not to take it personally when it's released and, and, you know, it's your baby and it's, of course it's wonderful, but there are a lot of reasons why a quilt doesn't get in the show. And those are a couple of the ones that come to mind for me. Yeah, no, I think that's, um, great tips from, from the curator, the juror's perspective to hear. And, you know, it reminds me, so I have some patterns out with simplicity and I remember submitting some and, um, some designs and not hearing back and being really disappointed and thinking, oh, my relationship with this company must be over because they don't want this next set, you know, of designs that I've submitted. And then I read in a book, um, about sort of how to make it as an artist, um, that was written by Lilla Rogers and she's a, an art, an artist agent, an illustration agent. And in her book, um, the book is called make art that sells. Uh, she said, you know, like the art director, it may just be that there's too many things that are similar to what you've submitted in that season. And so it's, they don't need it that season, but that, that no is not a permanent no. And I was like, oh, of course that would be right. And so I just waited and resubmitted the next season and they were accepted. So, um, but I wouldn't have done that had I not realized that the no wasn't a permanent no. So, um, and you know, Hey, sometimes it is, but in, you know, often it's just that it didn't play with what they already had. So just keep that in mind. (laughs) It's absolutely true. And, you know, I will say something that my art school daughters have said to me on a number of occasions, they, they've said, if you can't wallpaper a small room of your house with your rejection letters, it just means you're not trying hard enough. Yeah, there you go. I mean, you so. really, I don't know of any, I, the, the point being that no matter what degree of experience or success you have, you just have to keep putting yourself out there. And I've had a number of things, like you said, where I've submitted it to this particular show and it was released and I've turned around and put it in a different show and it's won an award. Right. So sometimes it has to do with who's looking at the work. Sometimes it's what else has been submitted beside your work. And sometimes it's just a matter of timing and the venue, you know? And so, but I think that just people should understand that if they've tried and not been successful in getting something in a show, it's not necessarily reflection of the quality or the style of their work. There are a lot of variables that go into it. And the, the real word I would say is to keep putting yourself out there, keep making the work, keep showing up and, you know, something will 
click. At the same time, as you said, like there can be an, a conversation sometimes. Um, I know with like pitching books, um, book ideas to publishers, you know, having that conversation, even if the idea is rejected, but learning why it was rejected, sort of why did they think that that idea wouldn't sell and being able to incorporate their suggestions, some of them, you know, some of them, maybe you think, oh, that's wrong. But sometimes yes. they do have important suggestions where you see why something that you thought was a great idea actually isn't marketable and how you could change it and make it more marketable. So sometimes um, that feedback, you know, all of your friends and family are likely to say, it looks great. Um, (laughs) And it's very difficult to get real feedback. So sometimes, you know, uh, when something isn't working, this is a way to find out. So it can kind of go both ways. And so, um, okay, Um, I want to make sure that we get to your recommendations. So um, uh, let's start there. You have, first you wanted to recommend um, your Instapot, which I know you were saying (laughs) that that Carol Soderlund, who was on the show a few months back, had also recommended. So um, do you want to just tell us one of the things that you've been making in your Instapot? One of the things that I love about it is that because we tend to eat plant-based at home and So for us, that translates into lots of things that need to be rehydrated or whatever. And I love the fact that I can make, uh, I can take dried beans and in under an hour, I can have fully hydrated cooked beans. I've heard it's great for for dried beans. Yeah. Which you have to soak overnight. And yeah. Yeah. It's usually a long process. and, And that makes it so much easier. But I like the fact that you can make your own yogurt in there. You can make, you can saute things. So, so I tend to saute a lot of vegetables and, you know, components to a dish and then finish them in there. Um, I think I can take a lot of things that I would normally do on a stove and translate them into constructing into an Instapot and have a, you know, have a pretty good meal that's, you know, a fourth of the time to construct. If I'd had this tool when I had, young kids at home, I think it would have been a game changer, really. You wanted to recommend your, um, your Bose noise canceling headphones and especially for flying on an airplane. And I know you are also a pilot. Yes. I'm not actively flying at this point in time. Um, but technically once a pilot, always a pilot. And, um, that was just a personal challenge that I pursued and did most of my flying when we were still living in the Midwest, but I'm a, I have a private pilot certificate and I'm also a instrument rated multi-engine rated pilot. My, my husband is also a pilot. And so we, we've spent a, we've had a lot of flying adventures together and it's, it's been a really fun, really uh, mind sharpening endeavor, I think. That's and great. I, yeah, I love it. It's, I don't think I've ever had a, a greater sense of freedom than I have when I'm up in an airplane by myself, flying mm-hmm. on planes. It's wonderful. So yes, back to the noise canceling headsets. Oh my goodness. What a, what a wonderful thing. I don't know why I waited so long to get a good set. I'm one of these people that can't find the right set of earbuds that fit in my ears without eventually making my ears you know, rebel that I just, I don't know if I've got some kind of deformity inside my ear, but earbuds are very uncomfortable for me to wear. And so finally, one time out of exasperation, I was at an airport and I just walked into one of those shops that sells stuff for people who are flying and looked around and said, I want a really good set of headsets that have noise canceling. And as a pilot, I had used a set of Bose noise canceling headsets when I flew and I couldn't believe how much they cut down on, you know, extraneous noise. So I thought, why not just go with that? You know, that they're good. And I bought a set of those on a whim at an airport and I've just been so happy I did it because it makes, I, I love listening to audiobooks when I'm, or, and podcasts when I'm in flight, but I find that I just, I like using them at home. It's just a, it's a great way to have my own thing going on in here without distracting anyone else in the house for one thing, but it's just, I think that's just a wonderful thing that I did for myself. Yeah, they're great. And I'm wearing them right now. I use them for the podcast. And then my daughter, um, my oldest daughter has some sensory um, sensitivities. And so when she was in, um, 
tech shop in middle school that in woodworking, they were, you know, sanding and she can't stand, uh, which is understandable, the sound of sandpaper rubbing, you know, that sound. And she yes. hates that sound. And she was really having difficulty. Um, and then the teacher gave her some noise canceling headphones to wear during the sanding process. And it made a world of difference. So That's she just amazing. put those on and she could sand away. And it was great. So That's they're good amazing. for many different things. So um, yes. yeah, I, I highly recommend them as well. And like I said, I, I wear them during the podcast and it's, it's terrific. So, um, so yeah. Leslie, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the Washing Naps podcast. I really enjoyed talking with you. I am so, so honored that you asked me and it was just a joy to have a conversation with you, Abby. So thank you. Thank you so much. And you've been listening to the Washing Naps podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Visit my blog, walshynaps.com, where you can sign up for my email newsletter to get the best in sewing, blogging, and small business delivered right to your inbox each week. Today's episode was sponsored by Indigo Junction and their product line, FabriFlare. FabriFlare stars are some of Indigo Junction's top sellers. You can customize them for your space and style with stars made in your favorite fabrics. You can hang them on the wall or on your front door, and the 3D star is offered as a Radiant Star kit. The centerpiece star pattern is offered in two sizes, perfect for a bookshelf, a tabletop, or a doorstop. And the patterns can be stitched by hand or by machine and are perfect for people of all ages and stages. So watch Amy's YouTube video on Indigo Junction's channel to get inspired and see all the options for FabriFlare stars. And get a 20% off discount on your entire order when you use that coupon code WSN20 at checkout. Visit them at indigojunction.com. And if you enjoy the show, tell a friend about it. Thank you so much. And I will see you next time. 